You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Steve Morrison here. Welcome to the Coronavirus Crisis Update. Today, we're launching a new mini-series focused on the contributions of the Department of Defense to the U.S. COVID-19 response and broader health security goals. This mini-series builds on a long history of CSIS work on the DOD's global health engagements, most recently contained in a new report written by myself and CSIS Senior Associate Tom Cullison, a retired Rear Admiral in the U.S. Navy, for the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. The report was informed by a series of fall 2021 meetings that explored three main DOD assets, its logistics lift and planning capacities, its biosurveillance and infectious disease research and development capacities, and its international collaborations. Rear Admiral Tom Cullison, whose 38-year naval career culminated as Deputy Surgeon General of the Navy, joins me as host for this miniseries. We have at least three episodes lined up, with more possibly on the way. For more on the CSIS Commission's work related to the DOD, please see our recent report linked in the show notes. I'm Tom Cullison, a senior associate at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, here today with Steve Morrison, CSIS senior vice president and our center's director. We are delighted to be joined by Joint Staff Surgeon Major General Paul Friedrichs to discuss the COVID pandemic from the point of view of the Department of Defense. General Friedrichs, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. This is obviously a critical topic. Even though the Omicron wave may be peaking, it's clearly not over. And I think these are important discussions to have, both from the standpoint of lessons learned and what we need to do differently in the future. So let's dive right in. Dr. Friedrichs is a graduate of the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine and a board-certified urologist. He has a broad knowledge of health policy and national security issues developed from study at the Air War College and the National Defense University and through extensive experience in widely varied assignments, including commanding the Air Force Medical Facilities in Elmendorf, Alaska, and service on several major Air Force and Joint Command staff positions. As Joint Staff Surgeon, he provides medical advice to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He coordinates all issues related to health services, including operational medicine, force health protection, and readiness amongst the combatant commands and the Office of Secretary of Defense and the services. General Friedrichs, you you participated in the DOD Roundtable CSIS sponsored last October and November as part of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. There we covered a lot of ground on the DOD involvement in the COVID pandemic, and there's a lot that we can discuss. So let's start with COVID-19's impact on the ability of the military forces to do their job. Early in the pandemic, an aircraft carrier, USS Roosevelt, was sidelined for a time. Questions were raised about the ability to continue recruit training and to continue for military exercises to be held. Where Where do things stand today? Well, thanks. I, I think we're in a much better place today. And you know, as a learning organization, we've carefully monitored what has happened in the past. And you mentioned the Teddy Roosevelt. There was a lot to be learned there, much of which has already been captured in articles and publications and discussions like this one. But you know, we've also learned that 
the threat to our force with this particular pandemic, if they're vaccinated, is much lower than it was before we had vaccines available. And that's one of the critical lessons learned of this whole once in a century event. Vaccines are unquestionably working to protect our service members. And so we've, as, as you well know, and many others know, the Secretary of Defense mandated that all service members receive COVID vaccines. And as we've gone through the Omicron surge, it's really been noteworthy that while we have had a few breakthrough infections, as has the rest of the country, we've not seen our service members being hospitalized or dying of COVID infections, which we believe in large part is due to the incredible safety and effectiveness of the vaccines that are available today. So that, that's a success story, really, compared to the rest of the country. The vaccination rates in uh, all the services are much higher than the population in general. Did you and the services receive much pushback on vaccines? Was there hesitancy? And how did you overcome it? Well, clearly, there were a lot of concerns expressed in different forums about vaccines. I think tremendous credit goes to the services and the leadership across the department for the work that they did in presenting facts. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've, we've got great data now showing the safety and the effectiveness of vaccines to protect the force. But as importantly, we've also got, I think, the same narrative we've had for 240 years about what the Department of Defense does. We've never stopped defending the nation. We've never changed our focus on ensuring that we were able to commit forces, if necessary, to do our nation's work. And We've given vaccines literally since George Washington led the Continental Army and inoculated people against smallpox. This is not new for the military. So were there people who were concerned? Was there pushback? Yes, just like we've seen across the rest of the country. But we have well-developed policies and procedures to deliver vaccines and to address those concerns. And, and we've leveraged those since the vaccines became available. Since early in the pandemic, DOD's played a major domestic role in supporting civilian efforts around the country in a whole bunch of different ways, a testing and vaccines program, providing clinical personnel and overstretched civilian health facilities. Currently, there's, I understand, over 15,000 National Guard personnel activated across all 50 states with about 6,000 or so providing direct medical support to medical facilities. President Biden recently directed that over a thousand active duty military medical personnel should assist their colleagues in civilian institutions. How can military medicine, how can DOD do this without negatively impacting the ability to meet the many daily requirements that DOD has? Well, it's tough. I'm very proud of the work that we've done. And, you know, I, and I have done very little of it sitting here in the Pentagon. It's been the people out on the deck plates of the hospital ships when they were deployed our deployable Army medical units and our deployable Air Force medical units have gone out. And it, as you recall, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we sent large formations out, essentially entire hospitals out, and very quickly learned that wasn't what was needed. And then we were able to bring those folks back who weren't needed to reduce the strain on the communities where they normally worked. In the current iteration, in this wave that we've been dealing with now since December, we have about 1,500 military medics on active duty deployed or preparing to deploy, and that's a much more tailored force. We've, we've tried to minimize the impact to the greatest extent possible, unlike uh, the larger assemblages that went out in the early days of the pandemic. 
On the Guard side, the commitment to provide funding for the governors to activate Guardsmen and Guardswomen clearly has been tremendously helpful. And and I would actually say that the number that you quoted of 15,000 is even higher today. I believe we're closer to 20,000. And thousands of those are medical personnel or Guardsmen and women involved in delivering a variety of medical services. The really hard part of your question is how do you do that without impacting the DOD healthcare system? And the short answer is just like in the rest of the country, we have had to dial back services in some locations where we've sent folks out to communities because they were overwhelmed. They have had to decrease their elective surgeries or to stop their non-emergent admissions. And we've had to do the same thing at some of our facilities at different points during the pandemic. We've had to decrease the number of beds that are available in our ICUs or in our hospitals in order to free up staff to go work in other facilities. So it's been a balancing act. Defense Health Agency, which uh, you know has come into existence in the last few years, has played an integral role in trying to balance that those actions in the communities where they occur so that if folks needed care and we could no longer provide it, We attempted to find care for them at local facilities near the bases. General, two questions. One around uh, vaccinations. You know, we we know that there's ongoing discussion around the obligation of National Guardsmen to reach their target. I think that's late June, June of this year. There's been some back and forth recently between Secretary of Defense and others around the authorities of the of the executive versus the governors and deployability of the National Guard troops, whether it's domestic or international. And there's been more pushback there. And I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on where that is, is, is likely to move. The Secretary of Defense was very strong in the position he took. And this, the other question is around how do both the, those in active service and those who are National Guard personnel, have you been able to capture the sentiment among those who've been deployed during this pandemic in support of the civilian efforts? And how do they judge their experience in taking on that role? At one point, we had, I think, 40,000 National Guard deployed, a very significant number. How do you believe they view that role? I'll answer the second question first. In the discussions that I've had with people who either were deployed at the time or have deployed and returned home, I think overwhelmingly, there was a sense of accomplishment and the reward that many of us feel throughout our service. You know, we volunteer to serve, and this is a remarkable opportunity. When you go into a hospital, the staff is exhausted. They've been working full tilt for weeks, and you're able to help open up additional beds to deal with the patients that may have been sitting in the emergency room waiting for a bed to open up. Now, that's quite rewarding. Uh, Most of us went into the medical profession early in our careers with a commitment to take care of sick people. And unfortunately, this hopefully once in a hundred year event has generated a heck of a lot of sick people. And so, you know, I think I I can speak for many of my colleagues in saying that at least what I've heard has been a sense of accomplishment and that this was a worthwhile opportunity to do what we signed up for when we became medics and, and when we joined the military. I don't think many, many of us envisioned that we would be doing it at home. This is, you know, this is something we've often done overseas, but a sense of accomplishment. It's usually at that moment when the health systems themselves are at, are at risk of being overwhelmed, right? And people are very anxious. 
They don't want to be left with a system that is not able to function normally. Many systems have had to go to crisis care. So my sense is that when the National Guard and the active military show up in, in support of these facilities, it has an enormously calming and reassuring impact on the population and on the personnel running those facilities, but also on the population served. Well, I, I certainly hope that that is the way it's perceived. That's the feedback that we've heard. You know, at times people have expressed a variety of perceptions or concerns. I, I just say that, you know, throughout this now two over two years that we've been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's clear that our healthcare system has struggled when there have been significant surges that stress the capacity of the system. And your U.S. military medics, whether active duty, guard, or reserve, stepped in to fill that breach. I think that's a really important message for our nation as a whole, that you know, this is another role that DOD plays. It, it is, you know, it's not our primary mission, clearly, but it is one of the things that DOD has done, just as we've done when there have been natural disasters or other events that overwhelmed parts of our communities or stressed our country. And so, you know, how do we feel about that? I think most of us feel that it's a privilege to be able to help. We recognize also that this highlights the challenges that our healthcare system as a whole faces today because there's not enough capacity to deal with things like this. And Hopefully, we won't have to deal with this for much longer. Then going back to your first question, I'll just briefly say that, you know, you, you've now transitioned to a very legal question and not a medical question. And so I'll tell you, I'm not a bad surgeon. I'm a terrible lawyer. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll have to ask the lawyers to weigh in on how those court cases are going to unfold. I will say, you know, historically, as I mentioned earlier, the military has administered inoculations and vaccines literally since the founding of our nation. This has been a core part of how we protect service members. And as a doc who cares deeply about protecting the health of our service members and their families, I certainly hope that we continue that commitment to mitigating risk to our service members and their families. Let's shift gears for just a minute. Uh, in the beginning, we talked about force health protection, and the Department of Defense has many, many capabilities to identify, prevent, and treat biological threats spread all over the world. But so does the civilian sector. There are lots and lots of ways to do this. So why is it so important that DOD support such an extensive worldwide infrastructure focused on infectious disease threats? Yeah, so, you know, we get that question a lot of times, well, aren't there other people doing that? And the short answer is yes, and they're complementary efforts. And I think that's a, you know, a really important point. DOD does not do a whole lot with care for young children or for pregnant mothers in other countries. That's not our thing. But from the standpoint of what I said just a moment ago, protecting the force, it's critically important that we have very timely and accurate understanding of emerging infectious diseases or other biological threats to our forces. And the best way to do that, we found over now nearly 100 years in this, doing this kind of work, is to partner with our allies and with nations who share our concern and build those labs around the world, staff sometimes other countries' labs, so that we have those connections in place before there's a crisis we have the monitors in place before there's an outbreak so that as something unfolds, we recognize it as early as possible and we have the connections in place with key allies and partners to help respond as effectively as possible. 
again, you know, I, I think, uh, sir, during your time in the Navy, you were very involved in some of that work. And, and I really highlight the value of those relationships, as with everything, starting at the local community level all the way up to the national level. The time to build relationships is not in the middle of a crisis. It's before a crisis occurs. And that's part of what we worked on very hard, complementing the work that other agencies do with their partners around the world for the things that they're responsible for. You touched a little bit on, on some of the specifics there. We have laboratories, infectious disease laboratories in various parts of the world, in Peru, in Thailand, in Kenya, in the country of Georgia, that have been there for decades working with host nation uh, scientists in those countries. Can you speak a little bit about the value of those and why they're in the locations they're in? You know, I, I think the United States is is remarkable in the approach that we've taken. When we offer to partner with a nation, it doesn't come with strings attached. We don't try to coerce them into giving us something in return. We do not insist that the partnership has to be done only with U.S. personnel. It is very much about a partnership. It is very much about equals working together with a shared commitment to improving health and public safety. And, and so, you know, that's the first thing that I would say right off the bat that I think countries have recognized that partnering with us is a different experience than may be the case with some other nations. And there's great value in that. I'm very proud of the fact that ours has been from the beginning a commitment to shared benefit, not a quid pro quo relationship. You know, in some reading I was doing and putting something else together, it, it seemed to me that the military health system and other parts of the Department of Defense, such as the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program that looks at biological threats around the world, if you put all that together, you really have all the components of a truly worldwide integrated health system, and even more, including biosurveillance, research and development, public health, primary and specialty and clinical care, rehab, education and training at all levels, Yet by its very size and its very complexity and diffuse span of control across DOD, sometimes it seems to me that this hinders the agility and collaboration between these various components of a, what, to my mind, should be a truly integrated health system. Yeah, so I, I, you certainly will not ever catch me saying that we don't have a well-developed bureaucracy. And, and there's no question that in an organization this size, there are lots of people working on lots of things. I agree. There are always opportunities to improve communication and integration. I've been very grateful that our colleagues in the Defense Threat Reduction Agency have been quick to partner. We've reached out to them multiple times during my tenure in this job, and, and they've been great partners. I was just on the phone with Dr. Pope and some of his colleagues last week on a variety of initiatives. I do agree with you that there's more that we can do across the department to better integrate, and there's more across the whole of government that we can do to integrate efforts. Because you're right, at the end of the day, key data should not be solely available to a part of the enterprise that needs to know it. We need to continue to work on how we make that information available across the enterprise and how we best synchronize our efforts. But I'll go back to what I said just a moment ago. These are complementary efforts. I, you know, I, with all the efficiency drives over the last few years, I think anyone would be hard pressed to find where we have truly redundant capabilities. The biggest opportunity that, that I see and that I think we've highlighted in some of the after action reviews 
is to improve how we synchronize efforts so that we're sharing information as effectively and efficiently as possible. Well, speaking of efficiency drives, much of the military health system now is aligned within the Defense Health Agency, and this certainly is an opportunity to reorganize many things in line with future needs. But it also raises the question that less visible yet important capabilities, like the overseas labs, for example, might suffer because many suggest that lowering the cost of the military health system, which is over $50 billion a year, or 7.2% of the DOD budget, is the main reason for this reorganization. So does focusing on controlling the cost of care, delivering the benefit, put vital force health protection measures at risk? Well, uh, thank you. I think you laid out about a half a dozen landmines, so I'm gonna step around those very <laughs> uh, carefully and uh, hopefully candidly. So starting with cost, Look, you know, I've worked for a number of four-star senior leaders, and I have never heard them say, we want the cheapest health care available. I've never heard a senior leader in the Department of Defense say, can you get it a little bit cheaper? Because cheap is really the goal. So there's a, there's a balance between efficiency and effectiveness. I'm not sure that we found it yet, to your point, and I agree with that. I, I think the previous... Vice Chairman said it best that it is really important that we start with a clear understanding of operational requirements. What is the military health system supposed to do in its operational role? The reason that the department exists is to defend the nation. And there's a medical subset of that, and we need to clearly understand those requirements. Part of those requirements include protecting the force, and that's that ranges from building better body armor to better vaccines, better tests, having the labs out there to identify new threats so that we can develop new tests and vaccines, and then the whole gamut of other medical capabilities that exist. Ultimately, our line leaders need to understand, we've got this many requirements, we've got this much money, what are the choices, what are the trade-offs to make along the way? Part of our job, I think, in the medical community is to inform them of here are the trade-offs. Here's where you're trading off effectiveness in order to achieve a goal of efficiency. And then those decisions have to be made either here within the building or across the river with our 500 and some member board of directors who very carefully scrutinize what we do. But I think it really does start with a clear and candid discussion of what are the warfighting requirements and what medical support is needed to do that then a discussion about what's available, what's been resourced, how ready is that medical capability that's been resourced, and then a discussion about now how efficient can it be while maintaining the necessary readiness. That's how we're trying to frame the discussion. Thank you. But as long as you're talking about landmines, let me put one more out there. There's been significant decreases discussed in uniform military medical personnel, doctors, nurses, technicians, scientists, this has been put on hold ever since the uh, 2017 NDAA. I'll, I'll agree with you that military medicine certainly could be reshaped to uh, meet the future, but are force health protection and medical combat support capabilities at risk here? So I, the services have been given a, an incredible challenge. They've got to maintain the readiness of the force today, and they've got to prepare the force that we need for the future while also dealing with things like we're facing right now with a continuing resolution that's gone on for months, an unclear prospect for when a budget will be available for this year that we're in right now. 
So I want to start by saying I fully recognize there are hard choices that are being forced on the department, and you've heard the department leadership comment on the challenges that things like a long-term continuing resolution create for the department on a financial level. Having said that, I'll go back to what I said a moment ago, and that is we as a medical community working with our line counterparts have to be able to provide the same sort of thoughtful, objective analysis that starts with what is the requirement? What is it that the military health system is supposed to do in support of our nation's defense? Then assess how well we can do it with the resources that we have and the readiness of those resources. And then we come back to the table and we lay all that out for senior leaders and say, if you take money here, this is what that does in our ability to support executing an O plan or taking care of folks at the installation level. If you put money into this program, here's the benefit that you accrue in the future in improving our ability to mitigate risk to the force or risk to mission from a medical standpoint. I don't think we as a community have done that as well as other parts of the military have done in the past. I do think we're making tremendous strides over the last few years in learning how to move away from word pictures and statements of, you know, here's how the medics see it, to if you look at military medicine the way you look at any other part of the military, here's how we look at requirements and here's how we look at risk and assess it to help inform senior leader decisions. And, and that's on us. We as a community must have the fortitude to do those very difficult, uncomfortable analyses and then come back to the table with the facts and the results of those efforts. Finally, let's look for a moment at internationally at our relationship with friends and partners and potential peer-to-peer -peer threats. You've been a supporter of global health engagement as a way of strengthening interoperability with allies and partners to develop relationships with the former adversaries. China is viewed as our greatest potential peer-to-peer -peer threat at the moment, yet many of the materials required to deal with COVID-19 are produced and manufactured there. China is where the disease started. There's much, some controversy about this. You and I have both been involved in uh, very positive relationships with Chinese military officers in the past in a global health engagement uh, arena. How do you see our relationship with China vis-a-vis -vis COVID? Are there areas for collaboration? Are there areas of conflict that need to be resolved? Where, where does this stand from a, a military perspective? Yeah, so, you know, I would start by saying that when you and I and any other physician or nurse took our oath or whatever it was at the beginning of our careers, we committed to working towards the delivering the best care for our patients that we could. And I think for pretty much every medic that I've worked with, that commitment doesn't change over time. And we'll work with anyone who shares that commitment, who is dedicated to improving the health, not only of their own people, but those around the world. That's why the United States is donating, not, not selling, donating over a billion doses of vaccines. That's why the United States routinely sends out global health teams including our hospital ships and large groups to help other countries develop their care. Very proud of the work that we've done with countries to help them develop the ability to do aeromedical evacuation, not doing it for them, not selling them services, but actually helping them learn to develop that capability 
so that in the end, they're able to stand alone and take care of their own people when their people need them to do so. That's the difference that the United States brings to these discussions about global health engagement. That's, I think, one of the greatest strengths that we offer. We're there to help because it's the right thing to do. And we'll do it with any country that wants to partner with us in that effort. Thank you, General. I want to ask you a couple of questions around how you're seeing the pandemic evolving and how you're seeing DOD's role in support of our civilian-led international effort. What I mean by those two pieces, there's a lot of talk about as Omicron, as we get through this Omicron global wave, that we may transition out of emergency. We may have a wall of immunity through infection and vaccine that protects and takes and, and begins to bring down the severity or virulence of the disease. We may still be at risk of variants. We're not going to be totally out of this, but the pandemic is definitely changing and there's a debate about that. I wanted to ask you how you see that. There's also the president is coming forward end of March, sometime in March, to lead the second summit, a U.S.-led summit to try and rally support among our allies and friends, and that includes regional bodies and others. And we're trying to get much more granular around what the U.S. contribution would be. And the, my question there is, do you see an expanded set of engagements by DOD in this phase in support of that civilian-led effort? I know the billion, the purchase of the billion Pfizer doses, vaccine doses, uh, DOD played a, a very important role in procurement and delivery of those. Uh, some of that responsibility is now shifting over to HHS. So those are the two questions. One about how you're seeing the global pandemic and what you, what, how you're thinking about the course of it this year, and then how you're thinking about DOD's role internationally in support of what the president's attempting to do. Well, so I'll start with the, you know, how I see the pandemic. I see it as one of the most lethal and challenging foes that military medicine has faced in a hundred years. And I have deep respect for the ability of this particular virus to confound our best efforts to mitigate the risk that it's creating. You know, we've been hearing probably since April of 2020 pop that, you know, we're very close, we're, we're almost there. Uh, there's no question that the vaccines are having a tremendous impact. If you look at the charts, you know, for those who are vaccinated, especially those who are boosted, the risk of being hospitalized is a fraction of it, of what it is for those who are not vaccinated. But because of the number of people who are not vaccinated, there is still stress on our system. And if there is another variant, we will have to assess whether the current vaccines work. We'll have to see how long the protection from the current vaccines last. So there's a lot of known unknowns that you know, it'll just take time to see what happens next with this. You know, we went back and we looked a few weeks ago at the history of pandemics. And the longest pandemic, depending on how you define that, was back in the Middle Ages. It lasted for seven years. The vast majority of them, much, much shorter than that, which would suggest that hopefully we are indeed reaching a point at which with the high level of vaccination, and if that continues to grow, we'll see less severe surges across not just the United States, but around the world. And that's why those global vaccine efforts are so important because we don't need, if we only take care of ourselves here at home and we are unable to control the spread in other countries, 
that opens up the opportunity for continued antigenic drift for, you know, the continued change of the virus, which can create variants which our vaccines won't protect us against. So that's a long-winded way of saying, too soon to tell, but cautiously optimistic that the tremendous work that's been done over the last two years is indeed translating into lower hospitalization rates among those who are vaccinated. That's very clear, and there's no argument about that. Uh, we just have to see how long the protection lasts and what happens with variants going forward. But one of the real positive stories about this pandemic is how we partnered with industry and literally with the global supply chain to rearrange that supply chain. And as was alluded to in an earlier question, mitigate the risk or the opportunity for any one country to significantly impede our ability to produce the vaccines or therapeutics that we need. And, and that's, I think, a very positive outcome of this very difficult circumstance. And we've taken a hard look at how and where we produce things and what, what the source of supplies are in doing that. And, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that's been done with DOD and, and more importantly, with our partners in industry and across the government to try and ensure that we are as well positioned as possible should there be the need to surge and produce different therapeutics or vaccines going forward. And then, you know, to your point about what do I think might happen next, the best case scenario is that we'll reach a point where, like with the flu or with other infectious diseases, with the right vaccination and common sense measures that started with your mom telling you as a kid, cover your mouth when you cough and wash your hands and make sure that you stay home when you're sick, that you know, if we continue to apply those measures, we will be able to return, as we have within DOD in many locations, to much more normal levels of activity. You know, we are doing our basic training. We've changed it. We've implemented and reinforced public health measures, but we are going through and doing those sorts of very aggressive training uh, programs across the military. Our ships are leaving port, our planes are taking off and doing their jobs. And that's, I think, in large part, because we've learned how best to mitigate the risk of the force through the appropriate use of safe vaccines and public health measures. I don't know if that gets to your question or if that raises more questions. Well, thank you very much. Let me go back. I have two other questions I want to pose to you. One is to go back to China that Admiral Cullison raised. You know, there's a lot of concern right now. People, the Olympics have begun, uh, very stringent controls over the Olympics, but also very, very tight zero COVID controls over China's population, over 20 million people in lockdown. And people are positing that the population in China may be acutely vulnerable to Omicron in a way that other populations are not because because of this lockdown, you've had 5,000 deaths, a couple of hundred thousand cases. So there's almost minimal almost minuscule protections acquired within the population through infections. And while they've vaccinated over 80% of their population with two doses, the vaccines, Sinovac, Sinopharm, it's thought have fairly low protection against hospitalization and death in the face of Delta and Omicron. So people are saying, well, you know, they could be in for, if Omicron breaks loose and is unleashed, that could be a really serious problem. They don't have the volumes of mRNA vaccines as a third dose readily available. They don't have antivirals readily available. I just want to get your thoughts. How are you looking at this situation internally 
within China, the dilemmas that they face right now? So, you know, I, I have the great privilege and pleasure of working with medical colleagues from multiple countries around the world. And I meet regularly with my counterpart from New Zealand and from Australia. I don't regularly interact with my colleagues from China in this job, nearly to the same extent that I did when I was stationed in the Pacific. But I can tell you that, you know, as we look at two of our key allies, New Zealand and Australia, they've taken a, an approach that differs from ours and has been very successful, at least initially in, in New Zealand, in limiting the impact of the pandemic on their population at home. Your point is a, is a great one. What happens when you begin to relax that? You know, the, the good news in Australia and in New Zealand is that they have had access to really outstanding vaccines, safe and effective vaccines, and they have uh, a high vaccination rate in both countries. As Australia has relaxed some of their restrictions, we have seen uh, increase in cases and hospitalizations, but thanks to an open society in which there's free-flowing communication and really effective healthcare systems, they've done an outstanding job of mitigating that. And I, I don't want to pretend like they've had no challenges because they have, but you know, I think that they deserve a lot of credit for the thoughtful and deliberate approach that they've taken to begin to uh, make changes in their posture there. Similarly, New Zealand has announced a very deliberate and stepwise approach that they're going to take going forward. I, look, I'm, I'm not going to speak for the Chinese. I've read some of the same reports that you have out there. I don't have the same level of visibility into what's what's happening in their country. But I do think that there's great merit in taking a deliberate approach and in ensuring that the population is well informed of what to look for and what to do in the event that they become ill, as we've seen among some of our key allies and partners. I don't wish ill on anyone. There, you know, I, I want to be very clear. I, the last thing that any doctor, I think, will ever want is to see more illness, suffering, and death. So I hope that every country is able to implement the appropriate measures to protect their population as this pandemic continues. It's ultimately in all of our interest to end this as quickly as possible. Thank you. Well, General Friedrichs, thank you very much for your time. Do you have any comments you'd like to make in closing? I, I thank both of you and your organization for the work that you've done, not just with this specific topic, but over the years in looking at how we as a nation can continue to tackle hard problems, and specifically in the medical space, what we need to do to continue to improve. So thank you for that, and uh, hope there are more opportunities to work with you in the future, because there's still plenty of problems out there that we haven't solved here at home. Thank you both. Thank you. From all of us here at CSIS, please pass along our great thanks to Major Ahmed Sanay on your staff for his uh, diligent work in putting this together. And we'd like to recognize Humza Khan, Michaela Simino, and Elizabeth Pulver on the CSIS staff who worked very hard to put this together as well. Thank you very much, and we look forward to working with you in the future. Take care. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.